0: Well, good morning and uh, thank you so much for your kind invitation to be here with you today. Um, I think the world has never more needed places that celebrate the fact that God is not an object to be kicked around like some football where we hope to score uh, with our God against some other team. But God is the subject to whom we are to relate most deeply, and that's the spiritual adventure of being alive. And this place uh, is one house where this truth is celebrated, and um, I'm very grateful for it, and I'm very grateful to be here with you today, so thank you. As you just heard, I I work in a cathedral, and uh, I see far too many bishops in my life, and uh, there was a Victorian bishop who left a poem in his will. It was very short, and he asked that it be read out to all of his clergy on his death. And it simply said, Tell all my priests when I am gone, O me to shed no tears, I shall be no deader then than they have been for years. <laughs> uh, so I hope I'm not going to be too deadening today, because um, frankly, this is a subject that, that brings me alive, and that's why I want to talk about it. Uh, and I hope that through this day, uh, I will, if not convinced you, Uh, about the importance of poetry, the vitality of poetry to that spiritual adventure I just referred to, Uh, but that I may have given it a second chance uh, for you to to give it a a go, if if you're not totally convinced. Uh, At this stage of the proceedings, I'm always uh, taking comfort in the the words of Quentin Crisp, who once said, if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. (laughs) Um, Let me just tell you what I hope to do today. The first is, the first session, I'm going to give a sort of lead-in as to why poetry has become important to me, and why I believe it's important to everybody who has faith. And I'm going to look in the second session specifically at poetry and its role in the life of faith. And in the third session, I'm going to look at some poems with you. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to just keep this in the abstract as we will be looking at some poems after lunch. But this morning I want to, as I say in the second session, explore the idea and the practice of, of the poetic. But in this session, just a little sort of um, introduction. And the, the introduction is going to be in two parts. The first part is rather personal, and I, I hope you won't mind this, but I found it a rather helpful thing to do. It's to review in my own life why why I'm standing here now saying these things. And I hope that by just reviewing a little bit of the personal, my own personal story, might resonate with you as well. The second part of this first session, then, I want to look at specifically what comes out of my own life, where I feel poetry has become a very, very important uh, tool. So let me just try and be personal for 20 minutes or so. And I'm, I'm, at this stage, I'm not quite sure whether to feel more sorry for you or for me, because I haven't actually written down the script. What I've done is I've put headlines uh, to see what comes out, and um, it's being recorded, so whatever does come out is there for eternity, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's hope it's good. Um, I was born in Shropshire, I'm a Shropshire lad. Uh, Here's a poem that's local. Shropshire born, Shropshire bred, strong in the body, thick in the head. It's a local local saying, probably quite true. Um, But I was born, uh, and at the age of two, my parents divorced, and I'd never known my mother, because very unusually, um, my father got custody, and i have never seen her, met her, met up with her since. And my grandparents, as many grandparents do in this day and age, uh, became my parents. They, they stepped in. And so I was really brought up by my grandparents. Didn't see much of my busy father. And uh, my grandmother is still alive and uh, living in Shropshire still, and was 95 last weekend. Um, I suppose looking back, I was a bit of a, a Of a lonely child out there in the fields of Shropshire, Uh, and I think I was also somebody who developed a very strong inner life. I had to find uh, uh, my own occupation. I had to find uh, an imaginative life that would keep me uh, entertained. And one day, I just went for a walk um, down a country lane into the local village, and I went for the first time into the church was a small little church, and I can still smell it because it was um, uh, harvest time and uh, they'd all put in their rotting fruit <laughs> by this stage, and it was giving off quite a pungent smell. And, and there were a few people dotted around, sort of kneeling, and then all of a sudden this man came out in very bright green. And uh, I was mesmerized by this, and he went up to this sort of holy end with candles lit. And um, Started to say words which I really didn't understand and people were following them in this little black book. And I didn't understand what was being said. It was not a language I knew, of course I, I now know it with the, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but I started to, to cry. I don't know what it was, but something about the the atmosphere, the ritual, something. Maybe looking back, it, it was the father figure. I don't know. But I was captured, and uh, I remember thinking, I'd like to do what he's doing. Well, careful what you wish for, (laughs) because I do nothing else but now, but uh, um, that's where it started. And I got to know that man, and he obviously was the local vicar, and he uh, prepared me for confirmation. And this is when I, I often say the romance with God began. Uh, you know i even went home and tried to imitate in my bedroom what i had left so i lit two little candles and i put a sheet over me and i had a little book and i was reenacting because it was something that had moved me so much i wanted it to take it home with me uh i got a little bit older i went to school uh i was very lucky to um get a scholarship that took me to Shrewsbury School, which is a a great school, but it's full of rich children. (laughs) And I wasn't one of them. And as I got older, I realized, as I watched the parents of all these people uh, turning up, um, that life separates into um, what you think is important. And I was meeting people there, some of the best people I've ever met, who were very concerned about what you might call uh, justice and faith and kindness and compassion. I met uh, some wonderful chaplains at school and some teachers who I'm still in touch with. And there also I saw the shadow side. And it was at school I suddenly realized that, you know, life is not just about spending money you don't have on things you don't want in order to impress people you don't like. That is a very pernicious circle. Having lots to live with, but very little sense of what to live for. Um, somebody has just An American friend of mine has just explained to me the, the political atmosphere of America at the moment. He said, I can summarize it for you, Mark. He said, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu that world became very visible to me during my late school years. And if you want to be a little bit lighter about it, I remember going to a play around that time where Maggie Smith, in her own inimitable voice, said, you know, the obituary of our generation will probably be we left no loft unconverted. (laughs) I, by this, I had a really radical chaplain who taught me uh, that actually life could be a little bit more adventurous than that. He was a naughty chaplain. He said words like piss off in chapel and headmaster would go into paralysis and uh, of course he was deeply attractive to me. I thought I quite like this radical vicar, and uh, he encouraged me to come to London to go to King's College, where there was an excellent theology faculty at the time, and still is. And it was at King's, really, that I I suddenly started to find a difficulty in relating what I had come to believe and explore, my faith, with what now I was having to question and apply critical faculty to. And I, I find this collision between my faith and my study, which I loved, really problematic. I even, at the age of 19, got shingles. And I'm sure it was this, this, um, this collision. And this was the period where I often say my romance with God started to turn into marriage. <laughs> uh, with all its ups and downs, and it's a, you know, the, the attempt to be faithful. And I, I was very lucky, I had a tutor, who is an Anglican priest actually, who, who gradually showed me that you can live the questions. You don't always have to find quick solutions to everything, and actually the question itself might be much more important, and that actually you can live critically and try and live faithfully at the same time. Uh, but it isn't always easy, but that might be the important part. I'm going to come back to that later in the day. And I remember him saying, he he quoted a French priest uh, in the 60s in one of his lectures, my tutor, and uh, some French worker priest had been asked, why on earth did you get ordained in the late 20th century? What a weird thing to do. Why? And this priest said, I got ordained to try and stop the rumour of God disappearing from the face of our earth. He said, I don't know if the rumor's true. Most days I think it is. I can't prove it. Some days it's pretty faint. But I believe that rumour must be circling this earth. And that really lit me up. I thought, "Mm, the rumour of God might be true. I think it is. And uh, I decided to pursue discernment for ordination. I went to theological college at the age of uh, 21. And then, uh, not divorce, but trouble in the marriage began. They sent me on a placement to St. Mary's Hospital in uh, Paddington, and you've got to take yourself back. This was late 80s, this was when lots of young men around my age at the time, were dying of HIV AIDS. And the chaplain said, I want you to go and be my chaplain on the two HIV wards. And um, I I mean, I still stand here now, not making any sense of it. Um, It was horrific and beautiful. It was seeing lovely people die, holding the hands, of their loved ones, whether that was a partner, whether it was a parent, whether it was a friend, and um, and nobody could in those days nobody could do much except just just watch. And I I couldn't make sense of where the love of God was in this. And I went home. I sort of decided that I was going to go back to theological college, rather stomp my way to the principal, and say actually. I'm off, <laughs> thank you, it's been lovely, but it doesn't make sense. And this is what I did, and I, I went off to India. A friend of mine was uh, doing some touring, and I, I said, can I join you, and off I went. And I was trying to rethink my life, and what was I gonna do instead, all this. And then India, and those of you who've been to India, my goodness me, <laughs> magical, pushing every contour, that I'd ever had, Uh, expanding. I suddenly realized that the church could never pretend to have any monopoly on truth. Um, And I remember seeing a different spiritual life embodied there in various traditions. And slowly but surely I thought, hmm, perhaps God's a bit bigger than the Church of England ever let on. (laughs) And maybe I just need to think again. Uh, feel again, pray again. Um, so rather embarrassed, I went back to my theological college and said, um, can I come back? And the very generous principal said, yes, of course you can. And uh, I saw out the, the rest of my time there. And so when it came to having my ordination card printed, everybody was having rather pious verses at the end. You know, you send out your ordination card saying, please, for me and I just put a a little couplet from Gerard Manley Hopkins' Wreck of the Deutschland which seemed to sum up where I was I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand do you know I could still put that on any ordination card I'm coming up to my 25th anniversary of ordination I could still put that on it I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand and I went off to St. John's Wood Church to be the curate, and uh, you know was right next to Lord's Cricket Ground. And I used to love getting a taxi and saying to the driver, "Oh, it's the church, not on the Lord's side." <laughs> and uh, I had a great incumbent um, who died far too early, uh, who was a, was a great mentor to me. And slowly but surely, I realized I needed to write all this up for my own benefit, to try and make some sense. And that led to the, the first book I ever wrote, which is, I see at the back, called The Collage of God. And I used this idea of a collage because it seemed to me that that's what... If I was going to believe in God, I could not believe in systems. Systematic theology. I actually won the prize for systematic theology in Kings, uh, And I can't believe it. I mean, it must have been a complete fluke. Because uh, I used to take the mickey out of the, uh, out of the, of the tutor. He's, I used to say, oh yeah, I know, for all your doctrinal headaches, take paradox.
1: <laughs>
0: it all seemed to be so sort uh, of conflicted. But the collage idea, that slowly but surely, through the experience of your life and your prayer and your meditation and your conversations and your loves and your losses and all that, you piece together this, this collage and it, it doesn't fit. It's not a jigsaw. There's the, 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 the jagged edges. Things overlap. But if you take a step back and look on it, maybe there is still an integrity to it. And in that collage, I tried to identify the things that really mattered to me. Try, you know, I, I do find the business of getting older, you know, when I'm at my best, which I'm often not, by the way, but when I'm at my best, it, it should be a distilling exercise, <laughs> knowing what you can leave behind, and therefore what really matters. And it seemed to me on this collage that the hiddenness of God was always going to be there for me. And, and hiddenness, I think, is very important, and poetry has taught me that. What became clear to me that That I believe that God loves us just as we are, but God loves us, he doesn't want us to stay like that. That there is movement in this spiritual adventure, and we can't stay still for long, if led by spirit. Um, I believe that God is often silent, but for very good reasons. It's God's last resort against our idolatry. Every time we think we possess him, we kill the pulse of faith. And that's how it's always going to be. Longing is the pulse of faith. And therefore, I am also, in my life, going to have moments of reverence and rebellion, of devotion and dereliction. And Meister Eckhart captures it beautifully when he says, you know, I think God is like someone who, while hiding in the dark, occasionally coughs and gives himself away. And and so the hiddenness of God will always be on my collage. So will discovery, epiphanies. I believe very much, and and more and more actually, that Christ is the body language of God. Um, And that I don't need to surrender good questions for mere answers. Um, so discovery, and hiddenness, and truthfulness, and, and one thing I lament is, uh, you know, I, I work for a church that we have, a, we have an H word at the moment we're not allowed to talk about. Now, everybody, when I say that, thinks, oh, he's going to talk about homosexuality. I don't. It's honesty. We're a church that talks a lot about truth, but it's not always very good at being honest put a bunch of clergy together in a room <laughs> and see the defense systems that come into play because we all secretly think each other's a better Christian than we are or a better vicar than we are. There's a lot of um, armor sometimes in our in our spiritual communities. But you know, as, as um, the wonderful uh, Marilyn Robinson says in Gilead, a novel, nothing... Will ever be said true about God from a defensive posture. Nothing will ever be said true about God from a defensive posture. And then praying always will be on my on my uh, collage. Don't quite know what it is. Not quite sure what it's achieving. I just know it's vital. It's. You know, all those images sitting in the sunlight, trying to, like the plant, move yourself slowly towards the source. Um, the idea that the, the ancient Assyrians had this word for prayer. They said prayer is the same as opening a clenched fist. So it's not banging, demanding, wanting, it's trying to learn to open the fist rather than clench it. Um, and yes, I know that my prayers are going to be pretty hopeless. As C.S. Lewis says, we will probably spend eternity thanking God for the prayers he didn't answer. <laughs> um, and then finally, two other things on my collage. Service, the idea, and I, and I believe this very much at the moment, that whatever else Christian spirituality is, it is a life project of learning to speak up for other people, not just yourself. It is not about me and God and me and Jesus and me, 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 me. I often hear this at uh, ordination services in the cathedral. Uh, at every ordination you have that Isaiah um, 6, is it, where it ends and you always have a candidate for ordination. And it says, here am I, send me. And everybody goes, Ooh. And I often think, what would happen if you put the emphasis not on me, but on send? Here am I. Send me. Because that's actually what we believe. It's God's vision. It's not about me. Send me. It would just... Anyway. Something, as you can see, irritates me a bit. When when Christianity becomes navel-gazing and... uh, and about extending the self. Voltaire says, if triangles believed in God, they'd probably make him three sided. So, service. You know, there are two bowls of water in the Gospels. If you read the Christian Gospels, two bowls of water. Pilate, there he is washing his hands, and there's Jesus picking up on taking it to the floor. And uh, I think you've just got to. Decide, at the end of the day, which bowl is yours. Finally, uh, on my collage will be laughter um, and and humor. And I don't mean cruel humor, uh, I mean genuine laughter, joy. Um, No matter how bad things may feel, both in the world or in the church, I always remind people, Martin Luther King never once said, I have a nightmare. He had a dream. And you have to keep that dream alive by hope, and often hope and laughter are very connected. Um, it's the Quran, actually, that, that reminds us that the one who makes his companions laugh deserves paradise. Um, and I think with with laughter, with with humour, um, there is something. At, Of a reminder that that we're living in a post-Victorian Christianity where we're slightly po-faced about God. Edwin Muir, the Orkney poet, once said, you know, God for me, having been brought up in Orkney, God is just a you know angry, three angry letters in a little black book. But for the medieval, there was a lot more playfulness about their faith. I'll give you one example, and then I, I will move on to the second part of my introduction. But one example would be that uh, Easter Day, the priest would often get into the pulpit on Easter morning and do uh, a comedy routine. He would tell often naughty jokes. Think Frankie Howard, in, you know, Kenneth Williams, who, who were a vicar from the pulpit to make people laugh. Why? Because laughter was the only true way of celebrating resurrection. This was a day that you laughed your way from the tomb. That you laughed your way into a picnic on the beach. Uh, and then, uh, if that wasn't enough, um, on we know in Bavaria, in, in churches, that on Ascension Day, which we just had, they would have a hole in the roof and a statue of Jesus, and they'd Pull the statue up through the roof. On Pentecost, on Whitsum, uh, they would lower a, a wooden dove through the same hole over the congregation. Uh, the thing is that the congregation, when they looked up at the hole, choir boys would pour buckets of water through the hole. And the, the member of the congregation who got the wettest was known in the village as the Pentecost bird for the rest of the year. Playful. I'd love to try that out at St. Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> love it. Theolo- theology really good. The spirit is not wooden. It drenches you. And you won't leave this place as you came in. So, you know, playful theology and humor for me is really important. But we are a little bit sort of sour when we talk about god I think. and there's no need to and this leads me finally to the last piece of my any collage of god for me will will have poetry and this has grown and grown and grown and grown and this is why i'm standing here today to talk more about this um, and uh, and why i believe that piece has grown bigger on my collage There's a second part to my introduction, but before I do that, are there any questions or comments about anything that I've just I've just said? Anything that you're scratching your head about and panicking about, oh my goodness me, I'm here for the whole day with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then if not, I'll move on to the second part. Yeah. Have been doing the same I preached once, yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes. The walk through the park with the great beheading of St. Alban. Yeah, it's very playful. Very playful, too. No, I preached. I, I felt such a, a fraud because uh, I preached the day Desmond Tutu was there. And of course, everybody expected Desmond Tutu to preach, and they all mean. Which was, you know, what you call a disappointment. <laughs> but they got him in the, at evens of, But uh, Yes, I remember that day very well, because I didn't want to preach. But it's, you're absolutely right. There is a good, playful, but deeply faithful uh, enactment of, of the drama of salvation. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Anything else before I move to the second? Yeah. Um my sort of personal my personal experience for me, faith and church are two different things. Yes. Um I'm sort of wondering how you reconcile. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, for, I can only speak for me here, but I know that for all my frustration and sometimes anger at the institution of the church, it still has been the flawed vessel of something which captured me and still does. And this is not to say it is the only way. It's just been the way that I have have journeyed. Um, It's also been an institution, again, for for all my (laughs) frustration, and there is quite a bit, uh, it's also been the institution that has been able to hold me it's not God come to get me <laughs> <laughs> it's just me saying nasty things about the church I thought <laughs> <laughs> the stasi of the bishop had come to arrest me um, it's, uh, it's also been an institution that's been able to contain me in all my changing uh, and presumably hopefully there's a bit more changing to yet come Before the end of my life. Uh, And somehow it's still been able, you know, from a a more evangelical boy to slightly more whatever I am now, it's been able to hold it. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I suppose that's something that I value my own Anglican tradition about, it's been able to do that. Although, again, you know, I could give a list of things that wind me up. Um, But I don't think it's easy. yeah. yeah I'm sure this some relate to part of the in terms of the, you know, the questions and the challenges. Yeah. And stuff like. was there a time when you sort of, I would say you became comfortable or secure in, in this uncomfortable and insecure <laughs> position <laughs> there was a time when I just realised it's just going to be like this get used to it that actually, well, I'm going to say now what I was going to say later about poetry. I'm now of the mind that difficulty is spiritually very important, yeah. and we live in an age where we look for quick clarity and easy facts, and we press a mouse and we expect information. And, you know, we want, and I understand that in many parts of our lives we want things to be easy. I just think the spiritual journey knows that difficulty is often full of potential. And if you look back at your own lives, the time where you've moved, shifted, have been the pardon the expression, the shit one. So it's When you've been going through it, it's difficult. Tense. Um tunnels. And I just think we shouldn't shirk away from difficulty. And that's why poetry is becoming important. I've come back to that. So I think although I'm still not able to say yes you know, I just love the fact that I'm always restless. <laughs> I think actually there may be something important to it. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Were you banging the door? I thought it was the bishop come to arrest me. Very welcome, and uh, don't feel embarrassed. Let me move then to the second thing that I want to do by way of introduction to poetry. One of the things that I've discovered as I've um, made this journey, I'm now, what am I, 49 in September, um, is that. uh, Do come in, please. is the importance of what you might like called self-monitoring, self-scrutinizing, self-awareness. I actually believe the root of all evil is unawareness. <laughs> but so much of the evil that, uh, that stalks this world is due to unawareness. And that if the church should be anything, it should be a school of relating where we learn how to relate deeper to one another, to God, but also to yourself. Jesus said, um, uh, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, um, don't, I'm being recorded, aren't I? Uh, what did Jesus say in so the canon? Um, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He did not say, hate your neighbor as yourself. Mm. So there's a slow business about trying to discover you and come to terms with a bit of that. Um, You okay? You made me forget what Jesus said. (laughs) Um, And so, One of the the, the people who has helped me to become more aware uh, is Carl Jung. Mm. I'm reading Carl Jung. And I'm just going to very quickly remind us of something that he said. And the reason I'm doing this is because what this has led me to see is that I need a language that unravels me. That discloses. I suppose I'm looking for a language that listens, not to speaks. And I think that uh, poetry is ultimately a language that listens. Are you all right? Would you like some water? Okay. Um, And. this is why i just want to revisit the young element because it has led me to me realize that language as it's used day by day what you might call prosaic language journalistic language um, lots of language that we use you know without much thinking without much reference actually cannot do this it can uh, help cement you. But actually, we need a language that is continually stirring us up and exploring us, a language that listens. And uh, anyway, let me just tell you why Jung taught me this. Uh, you probably know, he, he, Jung is the Swiss um, psychoanalyst who died in uh, 1961. And uh, you will know, many of you here will know his main theory, and I'm going to give you a very quick reminder, and it's um, broad-stroke stuff, this, so forgive me. But Jung, of course, believed that the human self, as it's growing up, we all learn to fit in. We learn to socialise, we learn to keep people happy. Who are those people? Uh, Well, when we're very young, they're our parents. Or our siblings, there are schoolmates and teachers, Uh, then there are work colleagues, our bosses, the bishop, whoever. We are trying to keep people happy. And to do this, we develop, we put on the persona, the mask. Which is this social self or face that we present to the outer world, a bit like a shop window. We're we're putting out all our best bits on display for you. I'm doing it now. You should have seen me when I got up this morning. I was nothing like like this. My dog will tell you about that. Uh, But um, we're doing this because, you know, I want you to see the bits that I would like you to see. I've laid them out for you here. This is my persona. But, says Jung, in reality, this isn't what you are, but it's what others, and sometimes you, begin to believe is you. And as we fix this mask on us, of course, the mask can begin to eat into the face. And you don't know where one begins and one ends. And as we put on the mask, so we push down a whole load of stuff that doesn't fit in easily with the mask. So, emotions and qualities and traits and talents and sides to us and feelings, they're an essential part of who we are as a human being, but they don't go with the mask. So, uh, we are often afraid. Of these things because at some point in our life somebody's told us that they're prohibited or they're not wanted they're not liked and we've become ashamed of them so we keep them well out of view the result of this is we become a guarded version of our own nature on guard every time you're with somebody you're on guard and of course you just think um, Of all the forbidden things that have been forced on you through your life by other people. Uh, You might have been forbidden to grow up or change, to be original, uh, to be proud of yourself, to speak your own thoughts, to be gay, to be angry. We could go on and on and on. Uh, And through our life, those things that somehow we've been told are bad, forbidden, Um, those are the don't-go-there places. And we push them down out of view because we've concluded that they're not acceptable. They're never going to be part of the mask. And we push them into this big bag, (laughs) like putting out the rubbish. In it goes, and nobody can come near this. And often, We're very frightened of it. And I call it a bag. You might call it a shadow, the shadow, the Jungian shadow. Uh, The thing is that although we're frightened of it and we don't like people seeing it, of course, it has immense potential for creativity, for liberation, for wholeness. It won't just sit there unnoticed, it will out. And its playground is called your dream life. This is where it will take its breath. Because if you're not giving due notice to it, it's going to remind you. Uh, and so it will break free and it will try transmitting to you in your dreams. <laughs> remember me. And this is why I do think in the spiritual traditions, dreams are often thought to be. They are speaking to us, of of ourselves, from another world. Um, And, of course, um, if we can start to lose the control that we have over ourselves, it can often feel rather helpful, better. So... We're not really geared to do this, because we've been told not to, so if I have a few drinks, or if I take drugs, uh, or if I, whatever, any addiction, where the guard comes down, that's going to feel a little bit better. The problem is, of course, that um, those addictions begin to disintegrate us in other ways. But the shadow will always out, whether it's in our unconscious acts, in our projections onto others, in our obsessions, in our unreasonable outbursts, our somatic illness, and of course its loudest voice is called depression. This shadow ticking away uh, in a time bomb form. And uh, I often say this to younger clergy, you can imagine their looks at me when I say this, I always quote young to them, whatever um, whatever we ignore for the sake of ambition will always come back knife in hand to take its revenge. Ooh. They, they, you know, and I'm not just saying to them, you know, don't try hard to be an archdeacon. <laughs> this is, This is about all our ambitions of fitting in, of being popular, of, being, of avoiding conflict and so on. So uh, here we are with um, this shadow and it's usually around midlife where we suddenly realize that the, the mask, the persona that we've been building up and molding and coiffuring for your delight actually doesn't really add up to being me very well. And the great mythologist Joseph Campbell said, we spend the first 40 years of life trying to climb a ladder up onto the roof. The problem is when we get there, we suddenly discover it's the wrong house. (laughs) This is called midlife crisis. Um, One of the most dangerous parts of of the shadow, the bag, is the projecting that we do with it. Um, Because all this unloved part of ourselves, uh, which we try in vain to remove, actually it's there and we sort of fling it (laughs) onto you. So if you really want to understand some of the things that you're very uneasy about yourself, it's probably the thing that really winds you up about somebody else. And that old thing about, you know, for every finger I'm pointing, there are three coming back at me. That's that's summing it up in a way. Is, you know, study your first impressions of somebody. And you'll see, and very interesting, is Jane Austen was going to call Pride and Prejudice First Impressions. That was going to be her working title. Your first impressions are often made up of your pride and prejudice. So you can do a little bit of self-scrutiny by uh, looking at your first impressions of somebody. Um, Now, why am I mentioning all this? It's because all this, for me, uh, started to resonate when I first came across Jung. Because I could see that in my life uh, I had developed quite a lot of shame for various things. Slightly unusual childhood. Um, shame, just a reminder, shame is, guilt is, I've done something wrong. Shame is, I am something. It's a much more corrosive thing. And I was conscious that, you know, working for an institution where you do, you know, to, you do have to fit in. Well, you are made to feel awkward and side an outsider and there are things that am i allowed to say yeah. am i allowed to do this to say this to you even now you know i'm a canon of saint paul's cathedral can i can i say really what i want to say is that going to be penalized some way against me will it be you know am i going to get some greening letter next week saying "Canonically, i heard you say I do get those, by the (laughs) way quite often. But we're always doing it. And I suddenly realized that, you know, we build up lots of protective layers, but they're quite destructive, and they do eat into you. And therefore, I long for a language that I can both talk about these things to you and also start to excavate me again. And I need a language that's going to listen. A language that can read between the lines. Because I know that when I'm on my best behavior, I am not at my best. And poetry is the language that has helped. Not only self-scrutiny, but reading the love between the lines of the world, of life of God, and that's what I will be looking at in the next session.